Five minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nahum Siegel. Welcome to a Monday. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. It is the uh, nine days, of course. Today is day number four of what will be this year, the 10 days, because Tisha B'Av is observed on the uh, 10th of Av. We have a lot to tell you, uh, including our plans here at the Nahum Siegel Network for Tisha B'Av. And we'll go through everything a little later on in the uh, program. We'll start with our barrel wine, our custom to uh, go to spoken word programming during the nine days on this August the 5th and the 4th day of Menachem Av. Rabbi Wine's lectures, uh, 1-800-499-WEIN. If you want to explore his amazing lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com. Again, that's RabbiWine.com. And um, we'll be presenting his lecture on the three weeks in uh, just a moment here at JM and the AM. 72 degrees, partly cloudy, high temperature today of 83. Tonight, clouds and a low of 73. Tomorrow, partly cloudy, a high of 85 degrees. In Yerushalayim, it's 85. Up in Guilford, New York. Our friends at Camp Masora, they are at uh, 48 degrees here in New York, 72 as we wake up on this Monday morning. Coming up at 8 o'clock this morning, uh, my father's eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, delivered on the 3rd of Av, had the Shloshim of the Rebbe back in 1994, 25 years ago. We'll have that for you. I will go through the information about a lot of stuff going on in above, including what we're doing here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Next week, of course, uh, a very, very big week for us as we travel with Nefesh Benefesh on their one charter Aliyah flight of the summer of 2019. So as usual, a lot happening, a lot happening, including during the summer months, which is pretty amazing. And I'm glad you're along to enjoy it or to participate, I should say, uh, with us here at JM and the AM and the Nachum Siegel Network. Rabbi Beryl Wine, his lecture on the three weeks at JM in the AM. The three weeks between the 17th of Tammuz and the ninth day of Av are the saddest days of the Jewish calendar. They were established by our rabbis to commemorate the destruction of the first and later of the second temple and of the ensuing exile and dispersion of the Jewish people throughout the world. They are days of national mourning commemorating a national tragedy. However, they have deep personal significance as well. In one way, 
the limiting of the period of mourning to three weeks is a necessity in Jewish life. Would we mourn every terrible tragedy that has befallen us in our long and bloody history, there would not be enough days in the calendar year for all of the observances. The Novi Yirmiya in Eicha already points out to that fact in his prophetic view. Who can give would that I had the ability to weep, but I'm all dried up already. There are no more tears. What shall the Jewish people say after 2,500 years of almost unrequited horror, after all of the events that have befallen us on a national and a personal level, there are no tears left. There is no possibility for us to adequately mourn what has happened. The feeling that engulfs us is so overwhelming and so horrendous that we are numbed by it. And therefore, because we are in that state of almost catatonic depression, a rabbi stepped in in their infinite wisdom in their understanding of human psychology, especially the psychology of bereavement and of grief and of comfort and consolation, and ordained for us a set series of days and of observances that would enable us to funnel all of our grief to a proper focus and to allow a true expression of the feelings that exist within us. So the rabbis limited our observance of mourning to these three weeks of the year. And they did so in their characteristic fashion. By characteristic fashion, I mean that they gave these days a halachic framework. Without a halachic framework, without the rules and ritual and minutiae which constitute always the commemoration of all events in Jewish life, whether they be sad or happy, and these events sooner or later lose their significance, lose their meaning, and do not survive in history. One of the terrible tragedies which compounds the tragedy that it could have commemorated, but one of the terrible tragedies of our time is that no proper halachic outlet has been found for the commemoration of the Holocaust for the commemoration of the destruction of European Jewry. And therefore, in all of the non-halachic commemorations which have come into being, moving as they are, inspirational as they are, fraught with meaning and with remembrance as they all are, and they nevertheless are beginning to fade the outlines are beginning to disappear, and we hear often survivors say, when we are gone, no one will remember, no one will be able to say, and no one will be able to relate what happened. 
even though there is a tremendous spate of literature on the Holocaust. There are books upon books that have been written and will continue to be written. The subject is almost inexhaustible, at least from a literary point of view. Nevertheless, the fear is legitimate and ever-present that somehow as an historic event it will not survive in spite of the enormity, in spite of the barbarity, in spite of everything. And the reason for this is because in our orphaned generation, we have not been able to give it an halachic framework. We've not been able to invest it with the eternity that halacha brings to a matter. And therefore, all of the commemorations and remembrances, inspired as they may be, I have within themselves the ring of being finite, the ring of a hollow ring almost, that it will not last. Our rabbis, when they commemorated the destruction of the first temple and of the second temple, when they commemorated the weeks of sadness they did so always in an halachic framework. They said, these things are permitted and these things are forbidden. It has nothing to do with your emotion. It has nothing to do with how you feel that day. It has nothing to do with one's own personal wishes and desires. The greatness of halacha is that it overrides and supersedes the emotions of the person at that moment. I have to eat matzah on the night of Pesach whether I feel like it or not. And because I have to and because I do, the night of Pesach eventually carries great significance and meaning for me and my children and grandchildren, for all the family of Israel. It has survived for 3,300 years because it is not dependent upon how I feel on that night or what my emotions are or whether I'm tired or whether I'm depressed, or whether I'm in a good mood or a bad mood. The greatness of halacha is that it supersedes human frailty. It supersedes the vagaries of human behavior. It is an objective standard that overrides all of our subjective problems. And in so doing, guarantees that what it comes to commemorate will be remembered eternally and will have deep meaning even thousands of years later after the event that it commemorates took place. And therefore the three weeks are the symbol of that greatness of halacha, the greatness of being able to perpetuate an event in historic terms over long, long periods of time and make it real to generations that did not see it. The structure of the three weeks, most of the commentaries to the Talmud in Masechus Tainus come with the same approach, that in Avelis, in mourning, there are three stages. By the way, just as an aside, words of the rabbis do not require proofs from other sciences to make them valid. 
However, in this special field of bereavement counseling, of grief and of comfort, which has arisen over the past uh, 10 to 20 years, the study of grief has shown that there are three separate stages of the grief itself and that in each of the stages a different response is necessary. The halacha saw those three stages as the first stage being the immediate tragedy and dealing with the pain that we call the week of Shiva, the week of the seven days of mourning, when the person sits on the floor when the person weeps, when the outside world is of no consequence, when the person is overcome yet by the tear that has occurred in the fabric of his or her life, when the person has to deal with grief on an intimate, personal basis. That is the week of Shiva. After the week ends, there is the period of Shloshim. The period of Shloshim is a 30-day period, meaning an additional 23 days after the period of the Shiva. And this is marked by less restrictions, by a person getting out into the outside world. But it is also marked by the fact that he or she is not prepared to resume a fully normal life, not prepared to be exactly as things were before because the psychological realization that the person must adjust to is that things never will be as they were before, that life has changed irrevocably. Humpty Dumpty fell off the wall. All the king's men and all the king's horses can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Life is that Humpty Dumpty. You just can't pick up all the pieces and paste them together and go on. And Shloshim is that quality, that intermediate quality of the resumption of life, but of the resumption of life in full cognizance of the fact that life as it was before the event will never be that way again. Finally, there is an 11-month period of mourning for one's parents, Yud Beis Chodesh. 11 months plus the month of Shloshim. That already is that for almost all purposes the person is in the world. He has resumed all of his normal activities. But nevertheless, the halacha forbids him certain pleasures. It forbids him certain social activities. It forbids him certain things in his lifestyle that he had been accustomed to. Because now it is not only a question of easing the pain and of assuaging the grief, it's a question of remembrance, it's a question of honor, it's a question of priorities, it's a question of being able to transform the scar that exists within us from a wound to a source of remembrance to a source of inspiration even if I may say so, to a source of hope rather than to a source of sadness. Well, these three stages of grief are represented to us in the three weeks as well, except in opposite order.
the three weeks themselves, meaning the period of time from the 17th of Tammuz to the first day of Av, according to the custom of the Ashkenazim, and according to the custom of the Svardim until the week in which Tishabov falls, that could be viewed as having the same types of prohibitions, the same type of restraints upon us as the 12-month period for parents. We are still in the world. We are still part of our normal existence. But we remember that a tragedy happened. We bring to our conscious memory and behavior the events that occurred so long ago. And that causes us to pause and to realize the story of the Jewish people and the story of life itself that there are many more clouds than there is sunlight, and many more problems than there are solutions. Rare is the person that walks through life without major tragedy, without major problems. Odom Omal yulod, a person is born to toil, he's born to frustration, born to sadness, if I may say so. Hazal tell us that the words of Beishamai are correct, if man would have his choice, it would be better for him to choose never to have been created, never to have to pass through this veil of tears, never to have to experience physical life on this earth in comparison to the spiritual life which exists in the world to come, which exists in a higher plane of living. But since we were not given the choice, al you were created without consultation. You didn't, no one asked you if you wanted to be here. Al and you were born against your will. One of the reasons probably that babies are born always wailing and crying, they don't want to come out. The al and life itself forces us to live. And no one leaves this world willingly either. We are forced to depart against our wish. And therefore we have no choice either in the din v'cheshben, in the reckoning, in the accounting of our time and efforts. That priority of Jewish life, that understanding that what happens to us, we would prefer that it never happened. But since it is out of our hands, we have to deal with it. And that is the idea of the mourning period, which represents the first section of the three weeks. We remember, we remember that there was such a thing as Jerusalem. Jewish people have kept that memory alive for thousands of years. Wherever Jews were in the world, Jerusalem was a real place. Jerusalem was not a political ideal. It was not even a national homeland. But it was a goal. It was a memory. It was home. And a Jew has never felt home. Even we in this blessed country that allows us all of our freedoms and in whose life we participate so fully. A Jew never feels his home, at home. 
as he does in Jerusalem, as he does in his home. There is an inner home within our souls that recognizes where we belong. The halacha is what kept it alive. The fact that in the three weeks we can't listen to music, the fact in the three weeks we don't take haircuts or shave, the fact that in the three weeks we minimize our joy, the fact that in the three weeks there are no weddings, there are no bar mitzvah parties. There are all sorts of restrictions, inhibitions, none major, all bearable, none interfering with our ability to earn a living or even to maintain our lifestyle. And there are numerous loopholes which allow us life as we are accustomed to. Nevertheless, those halachic restrictions by themselves, by their mere existence, serve to remind us of the fact that there once was a Jerusalem and that there once was a temple, that the Jewish people are not to be satisfied in the most comfortable of exiles. They are not to say, this is my home, but that there is a gnawing need within us to find Jerusalem again, to mourn over it and to rebuild it. At the beginning of this century, one of the great rabbis of Eastern Europe, Rabbi Meir Simcha HaKohen of Dvinsk, of Lithuania, uh, of Latvia really, the famous Or Sameach, wrote in his commentary to the Chumash, Meshechochma, a short synopsis of Jewish history how Jews come into an exile, how Jews develop and participate in the economy and social life of the country that they find themselves in, how they wax prosperous, how they are able to enrich the life of their neighbors, how they are able to contribute to the society of the country that they find themselves in. And then suddenly and almost inexorably, opposite forces begin to take hold. Resentment comes, hatred, bigotry, and the Jew eventually pays a price, sometimes in exile, sometimes in death and destruction, and he is driven to find another place on God's earth. In our time, there are no other places. We have been everywhere. We've seen everything. There's nowhere left to run. But Meir Simcha there says in one of the most pithy statements which appears in his great work, Hoi ha'omrim le-Berlin shehu Yerushalayim. Woe to those who say that Berlin is Jerusalem. He said that in 1904. There were hundreds of thousands of Jews who believed that Berlin was Jerusalem, who believed in the Kaiser, who believed in German Enlightenment, who believed in secular humanism and all the great liberal values of 19th and 20th century man. Hoy, woe to those who said that Berlin is Jerusalem, because Berlin became the symbol of the destruction not only of Jerusalem, but the destruction of those who believed in Berlin the destruction of all of European Jewry, symbol of evil in its worst form, of atrocities beyond description, 
of hatred beyond understanding. And if we could paraphrase him today, I think that Mayor Simcha would write, woe to those who think that New York is Jerusalem, that Williamsburg is Jerusalem, that Monroe is Jerusalem, that Muncie is Jerusalem, that Los Angeles is Jerusalem, that London is Jerusalem. Woe to them. Miscalculation. And the first part of the three weeks, therefore, with its inhibitions and restraints, with its slight limitations, serves to jog our memory, serves to point out to us that not everything is right, and that we are not as comfortable as we feel we are, that we should not be foolish enough to think that we live in a paradise and that we somehow are not part and parcel of the Jewish experience which is so clear and so penetrating to those who only wish to look at it honestly and to deal with it intelligently. An interesting point that has always fascinated me why did the rabbis ordain that a period of 12 months of mourning for one's parents is necessary? Whereas when it comes to the mourning regarding Rahman al-Islam, other members of the family, a spouse, children, siblings, 30 days was the period of mourning that was established. There was no 12-month duration of mourning as regarding one's parents. There are two insights that I have always felt apply, and they apply towards the understanding of the three weeks as well. Insight number one is that the death of parents, painful, tragic as it may be, is natural. It's part of the world especially if one is privileged to have had parents that have lived long and productive lives. Our rabbis tell us that when our father Abraham came to mourn his wife Sarah, so it says in the Torah of Aliv Kosah, he came to weep over her. So the word Aliv Kosah is written with a small chof. And our rabbis say that he wept in moderation because she lived a long and full life. It's an acceptance of the human condition. People who live well into their 80s to their 90s, they pass away. It's tragic. We certainly feel the loss. A mother is a mother at any age. A father is a father at any age and under any circumstance. But nevertheless, we can come to grips with it. That reason alone is why the Torah gave, why the halacha gave us a 12-month period of mourning, so that we should not come to grips with it. That we should not say, well, that's the way it goes. Which is the uh, macho American view of death. We hide death as though it doesn't exist. The entire funeral undertaker industry is to portray death 
not only as an invisible thing, but somehow pleasant. As somehow something that has to be taken in stride. People who do not deal with the reality of death usually are not able to deal with the reality of life. People who do not accept the pain that death must bring cannot really experience life correctly either. The starkness of death is what gives life its color and its flavor, what drives man forward to accomplish and to be noble. Otherwise, death becomes mundane. It's accepted. The rabbis didn't want it to become accepted. Therefore, the loss of a spouse, God forbid, of children, of siblings, that is unnatural, so to speak. And because of that, people don't accept it that readily. Thirty days of mourning is sufficient, therefore. But the death of a parent, which is in the nature of the chronology of life, a natural thing, something that has order and understanding to it and is more easily accepted, the rabbis wanted to point out that that also should not be accepted. That also has to be dealt with. And that the parent has to be memorialized. Has to be memorialized for the entire year. So that one remembers what one's parents meant to them. One is able to give honor. The rabbis say, Honor your father and your mother, even when they are dead. We owe them honor. We owe them respect. Again, that's a process of putting life into some sort of perspective. As being able to see things in a Jewish point of view. Now, the danger regarding the temple also. Jews become comfortable in the exile. It's natural, right? With 2,000 years without the temple, eh, nobody's knocking themselves out to rebuild the temple. We're 2,000 years without our own homeland, without our own country. Jews became accustomed to that also. During it is uh, ironic to note that during the time when the question of the Jewish state in the 1940s was on the agenda, Many, many great and assimilated Jews spoke against it because they were comfortable in the United States or they were comfortable in England or they were comfortable wherever they were. They did not want to become discomfited by this new intrusion of the Jewish people on the scene. And therefore, the first step of the three weeks is to remind us that it's not natural for the Jewish people to be without its homeland. It's not accepted for the Jewish people to be without a temple in Jerusalem. That we have lost something and that even though we are able to live and survive and prosper and achieve in spite of the loss, we recognize it as a loss. We want to redress the loss. We want to regain what we once had. We are not happy, nor are we committed to a life 
that does not include Zion and Jerusalem, that does not include a Jewish state, that does not include the temple in Jerusalem, that does not include all the blessings that the Lord our God bestowed upon that land and set aside for us as his people to enjoy therein. Another reason why the period of mourning for parents is 12 months and for others is only 30 days is because the intensity of grief God forbid for the loss of siblings of children of a spouse is of such a nature that it never heals there never is a moment when the pain disappears it is sublimated it changes but it's always there I once heard from a great rabbi who said that when he came from the funeral of his wife he said it is not that I buried my wife on the cemetery but that a piece of me was buried there as well when it comes to parents again no matter how deep the pain is not only does one get over it one is able to adjust to it in a different fashion completely and in order to emphasize again that role of parents because parents are not a piece of me I'm a piece of them that's a great difference but in order to emphasize that relationship in order to structure and build a life that has correct meaning and values the rabbis ordained this 12-month period of mourning as a constant reminder as to the continuity and flow of life and of generations the temple in Jerusalem also was meant to do that pointed out the continuous nature of God's relationship with the Jewish people as long as the temple was in Jerusalem the Jews had no doubt as to their creators interest in them and as to the divine intervention which has always been part of Jewish existence and Jewish experience now that that is gone the halacha bids us remember it observe the absence of it and the only way that that observance can take place the only way that remembrance can take place is through halachic prohibitions the second stage which is that of shloshim is called according to Ashkenazic Jewry the nine days which means from Mashkodesh Ov from the first of Ov until after Tishabov and the Svardim following the custom of the Talmud commemorate it as the week in which Tisha B'Av falls during this period of time just as during Shloshim there are greater restraints upon our behavior our diet changes we don't eat meat we don't drink wine our uh, 
personal habits also are altered. We don't bathe in the same fashion that we do all year round. We are limited in personal matters, not only in social and entertainment matters. And this intensification of grief comes to bring home to us, I feel, the problems that exist in the present-day Jewish world, problems that after so many centuries and after so many millennia have never disappeared, the problems from the outside and the problems from the inside. The nature of hatred of the Jewish people, the nature of anti-Semitism, which is a word that was coined in the 19th century, which according to the words of the rabbis has existed from the moment of Sinai onward, is the most perplexing of all human phenomena. What does the world want from us? Why are we so victimized? This small people that has contributed so much to the benefit of mankind has always found itself on the brink of annihilation has always found itself frightened, alone, challenged, persecuted, and ready for destruction. How to counteract this type of world? How to live in it? How to be able to deal with unremitting hatred? That is the problem of the nine days. The halachic prohibitions of the nine days bring to us a sense of urgency bring to us a sense of reality. The Kotzker once said in one of his great aphorisms that there really are no fast days in the Jewish calendar, no days of fasting. His words were, on Yom Kippur, ver vil essen, on Tisha B'Av, ver ken essen. On Yom Kippur, who wants to eat? One is so consumed by the spirituality of the day. On Tisha B'Av, who can eat? One is so consumed by the tragedy, by the sadness, by the realization of our condition, that there is no room for appetite. There is no room for food. In our time, when anti-Semitism has taken a toll unimagined in all of Jewish history, we know how precarious our situation is. We know what can happen. We have seen it happen. Does anyone harbor any illusions as to what type of treatment Syrians, the PLO, the other enemies of Israel today would give to us if they had the ability to control our destiny? Hitler and Stalin proved that you can do whatever you want. Chairman Mao, all of the great leaders of our century with rare exceptions, have been bloodthirsty killers. In the 20th century, I've seen more human life destroyed than all of the other centuries of human experience combined. It's a frightening world. And there are no rules, and there is no conscience, and there really is no defense against it. This overriding problem serves as the focal point, I feel, of all Jewish debate. 
some Jews say, well, let us arm ourselves never again. We will not allow it to happen. Would that be? I pray that such a solution would be a valid one. But in my heart's heart, I doubt it. There are not enough Uzis in the world. There is simply not enough Jewish manpower, Jewish firepower to destroy all of our enemies. It is only the divine intercession that prevents the concentration of enmity against us from functioning efficiently that has preserved us until today. We will be unable to match the world gun for gun, bullet for bullet. And because of that, therefore, we are in dire straits. Many Jews, therefore, give up. They leave. They assimilate. I think an unconscious but powerful motivation in assimilation is simply be the danger of being Jewish. And there comes a period of, in one's life when one says it's not worth it anymore. I always rem recall the story of a young man that came to my yeshiva. He was an emigre from the Soviet Union. And he was brought to our yeshiva. And uh, the father wanted that the child should be registered in the yeshiva. He wanted him to have a primarily a good English education. And he was willing to allow the Hebrew education to occur as well. This young boy, who then was 14, was not circumcised because, as is true of most Russian Jews, circumcision was banned in Russia. Liberal, progressive, peace-loving government felt that it was a barbaric act. The same non-barbaric people who sent a hundred million people to the Gulag and to Siberia. So he was not circumcised. I spoke with the father and I told him that before the son comes to the yeshiva, he should make certain that the contact one of the number of organizations, religious organizations, that deal with Russian immigrants and to see to it that the bris, the circumcision, takes place. The father told me that he didn't feel that he wanted that his child should be circumcised. I said, well, I, I don't understand why. He said, well, I'll tell you why. He said, my father told me that when the Nazis came to their village in Russia in the Second World War, every male that was circumcised was shot, even those that were not Jewish, and that it was the indelible mark of identification Jewish males. Anyone that was circumcised was killed. He said, well, what if the Nazis come again? What if somebody else comes again? Why should I subject my child to such dangers? I had never thought of it in that fashion. 
And I really didn't have a good answer to give him at that moment. And he left. Two weeks later, he called me and he said that he wants to enroll his son. And he told me, you'll be happy to know that my son has been circumcised. And not only that, he said, I also was circumcised. I was delighted at the news. I asked him, what caused you to change your mind? He said, well, I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I thought about it. And I said, if I'm sending him to yeshiva, he said, I want to circumcise him so that when they come to take him, he'll at least know why he's being taken. When they come to kill him, he'll realize what it's all about. Many, therefore, opt out. They don't want to be circumcised because they don't want to be taken. That's understandable, but it's not justifiable. The Jewish people have preserved their courage in the face of unremitting enmity. And the nine days come to point out to us that that enmity has not disappeared. That even though it changes its form on a regular basis, the inherent problem still exists, has not changed. And therefore, it's not a world of meat and wine. not a world of joy and happiness for us. It's a world of problems. Bitter, bitter problems. And to the extent that we can mitigate whatever anti-Semitism exists in our society, we should certainly do so. But we have to understand that in the grander aspect of the situation, there really is very little that we can do and that we are subject to the terrors of that terrible, terrible disease. The nine days also remind us of an internal problem, one that has also not changed over long, long centuries. Our rabbis tell us that the nine days, that the destruction of the temple, that Tishabov, at least in terms of the second temple, was a product of hatred, intolerance, bigotry between Jew and Jew. The words of the rabbis are that the Churban came about because of Sinas Fina. Hatred for no reason. The Jewish people are by nature a fractious and divided people. That's not always bad. Every Jew wants to do his own thing. We have, therefore, a great many Jewish organizations, a great many Jewish educational institutions, a great many synagogues. The nature of the Jewish people is to be disunited that creates a ferment of competition. It creates a freshness of ideas. It has a place. But unfortunately, it also creates a climate of hatred. A climate that I'm the only one that's right. Not only are you wrong, but I despise you for being different. 
I want you to conform to me. And if you don't conform, then you're doomed to destruction. That hatred is still present amongst us. Jews are such a wise people that it's difficult to understand how we have not progressed further in attempting to solve this problem. Perhaps it is our nature of disunity that leads to our nature of self-hatred, to the nature of despising other Jews, to the nature of being intolerant, to the nature of being smug and self-righteous and condescending and causing therefore pain and grief to others. Sinas Chinam has not departed from the Jewish scene. On other occasions I have spoken about the problems of fanaticism and of intolerance, of extremism, the personal hurts and hates, the terrible climate that is, that is created in certain Jewish circles, in almost all Jewish circles. I know no camp that is really free of the disease. As long as Jews think that way about each other, as long as Jews are unable to deal with other Jews with equality and respect, with sensitivity, with love and compassion, and again the rabbi said it's not a time for wine and meat. It's not the time. The hurt is too great. The tear, the wound is too fresh because what happened 2,000 years ago in the destruction of the second temple is happening today. Nothing has changed. If nothing has changed, we don't commemorate an historic event that occurred long ago, but we recognize a current problem that requires our immediate attention. It is a festering sore on the body of the Jewish people. Well, there's a lot of lip service that is paid for unity, for all sorts of gestures of amity between Jews. I don't come to decry any of that, but certainly what is required is a basic change of attitude. And that change of attitude must be within the person himself. The nine days come to change our attitude, to change our attitude towards life, to change our attitude towards other Jews, to make us appreciate how real the dangers are, how strong the problems are, and how current the commemoration of a destruction that occurred so long ago really is. We're not talking only about the destruction of the temple. 
We're talking about our own self-destruction today. Monday morning, JM in the AM, Rabbi Beryl Wine, discussing the three weeks. Part of his amazing series on Jewish history. You can get more information by going to RabbiWine.com, RabbiWeIN.com, and 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN. Both those uh, methods of obtaining information would be uh, effective in getting more info about Rabbi Wine's series. There's a spoken word format here during the nine days at the JM and the AM. And I thank you for tuning in. Um, Mayor Weingarten will not be presenting the Israel show today. That'll return next week at 9 a.m. Eastern time on Monday. I believe Yoni Pollock will be in with a live edition of After Further Review, The World of Sports. That'll be at 10 o'clock this morning. Many things happening in our community, especially because it's the nine days and Tishabov coming up. And I remind you that we will be at the New Springville Jewish Center presenting their amazing Tishabov presentation from Staten Island with five lectures explaining the kinos beginning at 9.15 on Sunday morning. And then uh, afternoon, two general lectures about Tishabov. For those of you who want to daven shacharis at the New Springville Jewish Center on Sunday, they're going to start at 8.25. And uh, Mincha services will be at 2 p.m. that day. A reminder that tomorrow is the annual Catskills Nine Days Conference presented by the United Task Force. The topic is, when did honor thy children become one of the Ten Commandments? How to instill gratitude and respect in our kids. Dr. David Pelkovitz, Hindi Klein, Dr. Faye Zakheim, Dr. Shoshana Friedman, all addressing the crowd tomorrow at the Falls View Estate Shul beginning at 1.30 p.m. UnitedTaskForce.org for information. UnitedTaskForce.org again for information. Um, the annual Amit Yomiyun, a day of learning for women by women, is this coming Wednesday at 9.30 in the morning at the Sephardic Temple on Branch Boulevard in Cedarhurst. The keynote speaker is Razi Chechik, head of school of Manhattan Day School. Her topic, Letters Floating in the Air, the story of the woman who printed the Vilna Talmud. Lunch will follow. Information registration on meetchildren.org slash yomiyun. Amitchildren.org slash Yomi Yoon. The bake sale to support the Lone Soldier Center that happens this coming Thursday at 11 a.m. and this coming Friday at 10.30 a.m. at Breezy's Dimples, 554 Central Avenue in Cedarhurst. That is the annual bake sale. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at on the Nahum Segal Network, and of course, on the beloved NSN app. 
New Springville Jewish Center live Tishabov program 915. Kinos explained by Shlomo Y. Siegel, Shlomo Schwartz, Rabbi Yehuda Kovacs, Rabbi Leo Sunnenshine, Rabbi Yosef Siegel. Thoughts about Tishabov at 12.15 with Mayor Simcha Siegel and 1 p.m. with Rabbi Yaakov Lairfield, the rabbi of the Young Israel of Staten Island. Shachris, 8.25, Mincha, 2 p.m., all at the New Springville Jewish Center on Staten Island. You're all invited to be part of it. Make sure to watch the entire program live at NahumSiegel.com. Should be very inspiring as it was last year. Don't forget, oh, Galitzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast next to JMNAM. Galitzal, Mirushalayim, Ashaashtayim. Shalom Rav, Khan Ofek Albert, in Mashakurachshav. המשטרה ורשות המיסים הודיעו כי התגבשה תשתית ראייתית נגד תת-אלוף במילואים גל הירש הנוגעות להעלמת מס בהיקפים של מיליוני שקלים. על פי החשד, הירש ועוד שבעה חשודים הפקידו כספים בחשבונות בשוויץ על מנת להעלים אותם מרשות המיסים. השר דוד אמסלם מהליכוד תקף בריאיון לאמיר איבגי בגלי צהל את המלצת המשטרה. בסופו של דבר, גל עירש הרי זה לא אזרח רגיל ובתפקיד רגיל, הוא אמור להיות מפכ"ל המשטרה. משטרת ישראל, אם היא לא תעמיד את גל עירש לדין, אמורים לעוף שם הראשים ברמות הכי גבוהות. צריך להבין את זה, הרי הוא היה אמור להיות המפכ"ל שלהם. אז לכן התנהל פה הליך לא תקין. הולכת רגל בת 80 נפצעה אנושות מכלי רכב ברחוב רבי בנימין בירושלים. כתבנו יובל שגב מעדכן שצוות מגן דוד אדום פינה אותה לבית החולים שערי צדק. המשטרה סרבה לחקור תלונה של ילדה בת שש שסיפרה שעברה תקיפה מינית בבית הספר, כך תמונת עורכת הדין להמלך שמייצגת את משפחת הילדה. בריאיון ליעל דן אמרה מלך, גם בבית הספר ניסו להשתיק את העניין. המצב של הילדה קשה מאוד, הילדה מוגדרת כפוסט-טראומטי. מנהל בית הספר דרשה לטטא את העניין מתחת לשטיח, שאף אחד לא ידע ואף אחד לא ישמע. היא הפכה להיות סוג של מוקצה. ההורים לא מעוניינים שהילדה הזאת תהיה בחברת הילדים שלהם. היא כביכול היא אשמה. מהמשטרה נמסר בתגובה, החוק במדינת ישראל קובע כי רף האחריות הפלילית הינו מגיל 12 ומעלה. בניגוד לנטען, מיד עם קבלת התלונה במשטרה נפתחה חקירה שנעולה ביסודיות ובמהלכה שולבה חוקרת ילדים. לאור העובדה כי גילם של המעורבים נמוך מהרף הפלילי שנקבע בחוק ובהתאם להמלצת גורמי המקצוע, העבירה המשטרה את המשך הטיפול במקרה זה לגורמי הרווחה. בית משפט השלום בחדרה האריך עד ליום רביעי את מעצרו של תושב תל אביב בן 82 לחשוד בביצוע עבירות מין בחוסות במעון לחסרי ישע בחדרה בעת שביקר את בנו המאושפז במקום. בתוך יממה שני אירועים אלימים בבית החולים הדסה עין כרם, מדווח כתבנו לענייני בריאות מאיר מרציאנו. בשעות הערב אתמול אחות הותקפה ונחבלה בגפיה על ידי מטופל שכעס על אופן הטיפול הרפואי בו. במקביל זמן קצר לאחר מכן באירוע אחר מאבטח של בית החולים הותקף גם כן על ידי בן משפחה של מטופל. בית החולים הזמין משטרה למקום אך לא הוגשה תלונה. נשיא אוניברסיטת תל אביב במתקפה על שר החינוך רפי פרץ. נמק מדוע החלטת שלא להאריך את כהונתו של הפרופסור יוסי שיין מהוועדה לתכנון ולתקצוב במועצה להשכלה גבוהה. מדווח כתבנו לענייני חינוך, דורון קדוש. במכתב ששלח הנשיא לשר החינוך, הוא הצביע על חשש לשיקולים לא כשירים בהחלטת השר לסיים את כהונת הפרופסור שיין בוועדה. לא אחת עמדתו לא עלתה בקנה אחד עם עמדותיו של שר החינוך שקדם לך בתפקיד, כותב נשיא אוניברסיטת תל אביב. חששנו הוא שמא בשל כך לא הורחה כהונתו. מזג האוויר, עומס חום כבד ברוב אזורי הארץ. אלה החדשות שעורך רועי ועד.
Shame in the AM. We are continuing with our spoken word format. We are in the nine days. My father's eulogy of the Lubavitch Rebbe is coming up at 8 a.m. Eastern time this morning. Uh, delivered 25 years ago yesterday on the 3rd of Av during the Shloshim observance of the Lubavitch Rebbe. That was courtesy of Rabbi Herson and everybody in, uh, in uh, Chabad of New Jersey. Uh, a reminder that um, the Isaiah Wall will be the site of yet another Tisha B'Av Tefillah this coming Sunday on Tisha B'Av beginning at 2 p.m. at the famed Isaiah Wall opposite the United Nations at 1st Avenue and 43rd Street. It'll include Torah reading or by Stephen Exler of the Hebrew Institute of Riverdale will be there. Bring your Sidorim, your Talitot, your Tefillin. Um... And it'll be the 42nd year in a row as a Tisha B'Av Mincha for Israel and Jews in danger around the world, including here in the U.S. And it's happening this coming Sunday, of course. Uh, we've been there before. It is a very inspiring gathering. Rabbi Beryl Wine is in the midst of his lecture about the three weeks at JM and the AM. Information about his lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com that we're not Jewish and that it was the indelible mark of identification for Jewish males anyone that was circumcised was killed he said well what if the Nazis come again what if somebody else comes again why should I subject my child to such dangers I had never thought of it in that fashion I really didn't have a good answer to give him at that moment. And he left. Two weeks later, he called me and he said that he wants to enroll his son. And he told me, you'll be happy to know that my son has been circumcised. And not only that, he said, I also was circumcised. I was delighted at the news. And I asked him, what caused you to change your mind? He said, well, I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I thought about it. And I said, if I'm sending him to yeshiva, he said, I want to circumcise him so that when they come to take him, he'll at least know why he's being taken. When they come to kill him, he'll at least realize what it's all about. Many, therefore, opt out. They don't want to be circumcised because they don't want to be taken. That's understandable, but it's not justifiable. The Jewish people have preserved their courage in the face of unremitting enmity. And the nine days come to point out to us that that enmity has not disappeared. That even though it changes its form on a regular basis, the inherent problem still exists has not changed and therefore it's not a world of meat and wine it's not a world of joy and happiness for us it's a world of problems bitter bitter problems and to the extent that we can mitigate whatever anti-semitism exists in our society we should certainly do so but we have to understand that in the grander aspect of the situation, there really is very little that we can do. 
and that we are subject to the terrors of that terrible, terrible disease. The nine days also remind us of an internal problem, one that has also not changed over long, long centuries. Our rabbis tell us that the nine days, that the destruction of the temple, that Tishabov, at least in terms of the second temple, was a product of hatred, intolerance, bigotry between Jew and Jew. The words of the rabbis are that the Churban came about because of Sinas Spina. Hatred for no reason. The Jewish people are by nature a fractious and divided people. That's not always bad. Every Jew wants to do his own thing. We have, therefore, a great many Jewish organizations, a great many Jewish educational institutions, a great many synagogues. The nature of the Jewish people is to be disunited. That creates a ferment of competition. It creates a freshness of ideas. It has a place, but unfortunately it also creates a climate of hatred. Climate that I'm the only one that's right. Not only are you wrong, but I despise you for being different. I want you to conform to me. If you don't conform, then you're doomed to destruction. That hatred is still present amongst us. Jews are such a wise people that it's difficult to understand how we have not progressed further in attempting to solve this problem. Perhaps it is our nature of disunity that leads to our nature of self-hatred, to the nature of despising other Jews, to the nature of being intolerant, to the nature of being smug and self-righteous and condescending and causing therefore pain and grief to others. Sinas Chinam has not departed from the Jewish scene. On other occasions I have spoken about the problems of fanaticism and of intolerance, of extremism, the personal hurts and hates, and the terrible climate that is, that is created in certain Jewish circles, in almost all Jewish circles. I know no camp that is really free of the disease. As long as Jews think that way about each other, as long as Jews are unable to deal with other Jews with equality and respect, with sensitivity, 
with love and compassion. And again, the rabbi said, it's not a time for wine and meat. It's not the time. The hurt is too great. The tear, the wound is too fresh. Because what happened 2,000 years ago in the destruction of the Second Temple is happening today. Nothing has changed. If nothing has changed, we don't commemorate an historic event that occurred long ago. But we recognize a current problem that requires our immediate attention. It is a festering sore on the body of the Jewish people. Well, there's a lot of lip service that is paid for unity, for all sorts of gestures of amity between Jews. I don't come to decry any of that, but certainly what is required is a basic change of attitude. And that change of attitude must be within the person himself. The nine days come to change our attitude, to change our attitude towards life, change our attitude towards other Jews, to make us appreciate how real the dangers are, how strong the problems are, and how current the commemoration of a destruction that occurred so long ago really is. We're not talking only about the destruction of the temple. We're talking about our own self-destruction today. We have to do something about it. Otherwise, it will come and it will overcome us, overwhelm us, it will mock our efforts, it will undo all of our achievements, it will leave us again, God forbid, in a state of destruction and depression and in a state of hopelessness. The day of Tishabov itself, so to speak, is the culmination of our grief. The day of Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of Av, is a sad day on the Jewish calendar, and it has been a sad day on the Jewish calendar, almost from the dawn of our history. Our rabbis tell us that it was the ninth day of Av, on the night of the ninth day of Av, that the Jewish people mourned when they learned of the report of the spies and of the negative things that they said regarding the land of Israel and that the heavenly voice commented, tonight you mourn for no reason, but on this night over the long centuries of Jewish history, you will mourn on this night for very good cause. The first temple was destroyed on the ninth day of Av. The second temple, the destruction began on the ninth day of Av, even though the main fire and destruction was on the tenth day of Av. Our rabbis combined the commemoration of both destructions on the ninth day of Av. Though there are opinions in the Talmud that the commemoration of the destruction of the second temple is of such a nature that it should have been extended to the tenth day as well. Certain commemorations are extended to the tenth day. It is not till afternoon of the tenth day that we do laundry, that we eat meat, that we drink wine. That is all in commemoration of the fact that 
the main destruction of the second temple was on the tenth day of Av. The beginning of its destruction was on the ninth day of Av. In the long history of the Jewish people, other events occurred on the ninth day of Av, which were of very great and tragic consequences to the Jewish people. The ninth day of Av marked the final day that the Jews of Spain in 1492 were allowed to emigrate. The expulsion from Spain is therefore also part of the commemoration of the day of Tishabov. In more recent times, in the beginning of the first, the spark that set the first world war into motion and the declaration of war itself was on the ninth day of Av. The first world war marks the complete dislocation of the Jewish people of Eastern Europe. In effect, in historic retrospect, we could say it was already the beginning of the end of European Jewry. The litany of sadness that occurred on that day is therefore almost without end. On this night shall my children weep. This night is the commemoration of all of the troubles of the Jewish people. And again, because of the fact that it will be impossible for us to commemorate all of those troubles throughout the calendar year, our rabbis and Jewish tradition saw fit, so to speak, to lump all the troubles together on one time, and it became a commemoration for everything. Therefore, in the kinos, in the elegies which are read, in the poems of lamentation which form the basic part of the service of kinos of Tishabov, there are kinos for the Crusades, even though the Crusades did not happen in the time of Ov, but rather in the Sphira time and the time of Shavuos. There are uh, elegies regarding the burning of the books of the Talmud by King Louis IX in Paris in the 13th century. There are kinos regarding the expulsion of the Jews from England under Richard the Lionhearted. There are kinos that mark each and every one of the terrible tragedies which has occurred to the Jewish people over all of the times of their dispersion and places of their dispersion. Tishabov also marks the debacle of Shabzai Tzvi, the false messiah, who perhaps more than any other person undid the fabric of Jewish life, uh, brought doubt where faith had once reigned supreme, and from whose apostasy uh, much of modern Jewish history can be directly traced. Shabzai Tzvi claimed to have been born on the ninth day of Av, and that was perhaps a necessary invention on his part since he claimed to be the Messiah and he wanted to live up to the prediction which the rabbis mentioned that on the ninth day of Av the Jewish people experienced their destruction of the temples, but the ninth day of Av also marks the beginning of the birth of the Messiah. He interpreted that literally and claimed to have been born on Tishabov. So the entire Jewish history speaks to the ninth day of Av as the saddest day of the Jewish calendar. In our time, many people have taken to commemorate the Holocaust on the ninth day of Av. 
with its special kinos recited in memory of the six million martyrs of our brethren who passed away so brutally in the 20th century. Nevertheless, the main thrust of the ninth day of Av remains the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, the beginning of the Jewish exile, and the problems that are created and have been created and continue to exist in Jewish life because of those desperate events. The ninth day of Av also brings with it, as does all events of tragedy in Jewish life, a glimmer of hope, a silver lining. Now, rabbis say on the verse, Korah Olai Moed, that the Rabboni Shalom has called this ninth day of Av Moed, a day of holiday, an appointed day. And therefore, even though it's the saddest day on the Jewish calendar, nevertheless, for instance, we do not recite Tachanun, we do not recite the prayers of supplication on that day, because eventually it will be Moed, eventually it will be abolished as a day of sadness and a day of mourning and will take its place as a day of holiday and rejoicing amongst the Jewish people. It's interesting, again, as an historic note to deal with Shabzai Tzvi, that in order to buttress his position as the Messiah, so this charlatan abolished Tishabov. This is based upon the story that we read in Treyosor, in the Book of the Twelve Prophets, that the Nevi'im, Haggai, Scharia, Malochi, who were present at the rebuilding of the Second Temple and the return of the Jewish people from the Babylonian exile to Palestine, to the land of Israel, instituted that the ninth day of Av shall no longer be a fast day and that it shall no longer be a day of mourning. And therefore, Shabzai Tzvi attempted to buttress his claim to be the Messiah by abolishing Tisha B'av. Well, one can abolish Tisha B'av, but one cannot abolish the troubles of Tisha B'av. One cannot acknowledge that the problems that led to Tisha B'av, the destruction that Tisha B'av commemorates, all exists. It's real yet. It's part and parcel of the Jewish burden that we bear and of the Jewish past and that do we therefore have to deal with it. And Tisha B'av, as we sit on the floor and as we contemplate the enormity of the weight upon us, Tisha B'av therefore has the ability to assuage our grief slightly. But we look forward again to the fact that Tisha B'av will be moed. It will be an appointed time of joy and of happiness, of significance and accomplishment that the long and troubled history of the Jewish people has a purpose, that all of the sacrifices, all of the blood and pain and tears has not been in vain, will not be wasted. Rabboni Shalom, in the imagery of the Jewish poets, has a vessel, a container, in which every human tear, every Jewish tear has been collected. Shatosim dimosenu benot cholios. God place our tears in your container so that it shall forever exist before you.
if every tear is counted, if every tear has a place and is not wasted, certainly every life, every sacrifice, every moment of pain and frustration and grief which has been exerted on a noble cause also will not easily disappear, also will remain from generation to generation, from time to time. And therefore our rabbis said truly that those who mourn for Zion on Tisha B'Av, and those who appreciate what has been lost, what has been taken from us, will be privileged to see the restoration of Zion and the building of Jerusalem speedily and in our day. This concludes lecture number 610 on the three weeks by Rabbi Beryl Wine. JM in the AM, Rabbi Wine's lectures, uh, information available at 1-800-499-WEIN and RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. And uh, yes, a uh, really an amazing and incredible lecture series, that's for sure. That is for sure. Monday morning on this August the 5th, day four in the month of Menachem Av. Today is the, uh, today is the, um, fourth day of the, uh, nine days format. The, um, The nine days, this year really ten days because we observe Tisha B'Av on the 10th of Av this coming Sunday. And I thank you all for tuning in and being part of this spoken word, for the most part, spoken word presentation of JM and the AM during the uh, nine days. On Tisha B'Av itself, we are... Uh, going to be presenting a whole host of wonderful speakers emanating from the Tisha B'Av program at the New Springville Jewish Center on Staten Island. We invite everybody this Sunday to participate. They'll uh, start chakras at 8.25, and the presentations will begin at 9.15. First, Kinos, and then Thoughts About Tisha B'Av. You'll be able to hear it on the NSN app. If you go to the NSN, Nahum Siegel Network app for Android and iPhone, you'll be able to see it by going to NahumSiegel.com. And, of course, you can do that on the browser on your phone as well. And uh, as it was last year, we anticipate it will be very inspiring and very worthwhile. Those of you who are looking to spend your Tish above in a very worthwhile and inspiring manner. Should be a very, very interesting presentation. Um, there are many other things going on in our community calendar, which we will outline for you coming up. I mentioned earlier that Mayor Weingarten will not be doing the uh, Israel show today due to the uh, nine days, but uh, Yoni Pollock will be in with after further review. Jake Novak with comments about the shootings over the weekend. He will be uh, speaking on Novak now at 11 a.m. Eastern time. So you'll be able to catch that. 
We also mentioned some uh, community calendar events this week, different things that are happening in our community. The annual Catskills nine-day conference happens tomorrow at 1.30 p.m. at the Falls View Estate Shul up in Fallsburg, New York. Dr. David Pelkovitz, Hindi Klein, Dr. Faye Zakheim, Dr. Shoshana Friedman. They will all be presenting tomorrow. Uh, UnitedTaskForce.org for information. UnitedTaskForce.org for information. Uh, the Amit Yomi Yun we told you with uh, Razi Chechik, head of school Manhattan Day School. Uh, the um, Amit Yomi Yun happens uh, this coming Wednesday at 9.30 in the morning at the Sephardic Temple on Branch Boulevard in Cedarhurst. The topic, Letters Floating in the Air, the story of the woman who printed the Vilna Talmud. Lunch will follow. Information on meetchildren.org slash yomiyun. Meetchildren.org slash yomiyun. This coming Wednesday night, you're invited to a special evening to benefit just one life. Wednesday night, 8 p.m. at the home of uh, Rachel and Ozzie Mandel. Westminster Avenue in Bergenfield, New Jersey. The Mandels and the Liebermans invite you to Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson. He will be speaking uh, on behalf of Just One Life. Information about all of this, justonelife.org or 347 347-996-7741. We mentioned the Lone Soldier Center Bake Sale at Breezy's Dimples, 554 Central Avenue in Cedarhurst, this Thursday at 11, Friday at 10.30. We mentioned the new Springville Jewish Center with Kinos Explained beginning at 9.15 in the morning on Staten Island, and everyone's invited to be part of that presentation and certainly watch it at NahumSiegel.com and listen on the NSN app. As Shlomo Y. Siegel, Shlomo Schwartz, or by Yehuda Kovacs, or by Eliyahu Sonnenschein, or by Yosef Siegel, all present Kino's explanation. Mayor Simcha Siegel and Rabbi Yaakov Learfield will have thoughts about Tishabov and the latter part of the program. Mincha will be at 2 p.m. And Mincha at the Isaiah Wall, the 42nd annual Tishabov Mincha for Israel and Jews in danger around the world, including here in the United States, happens this Sunday at 2 p.m. at the Isaiah Wall, 1st Avenue, 43rd Street in Manhattan, across from the U.N. Full Mincha, Torah reading, it's all part of it. Bring your Sidurim, Talitot, and Tefillin for information, 212-663-5784, 212-663-5784. Seven thirty-one in the morning. Rabbi David Goldwasser's words: Zechenishmas Harav Zebner Yosef Alevi and Zechenishmas Esther Basar Yosef Alevi. Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with morning chizuk. Good morning. We learn Masa Avos Simen Labanim. The actions, the deeds of our fathers, are a sign for our children. Our Chachamim tell us that when an individual is going through a nisayon, a challenge. The Mayana Sachachma, the wellsprings of wisdom, are close to him. The Pasuk tells us, that Avram Avinu sent forth his hand, 
and he took the knife, Lishchait Espino, in order to shecht, to slaughter his son. The Targum Yonason explains that Avram Avinu looked into the eyes of Yitzchak, and the eyes of Yitzchak looked at the Malachi Ashares, the angels. Yitzchak saw the Malachim. Avraham Avinu did not see them. The Berachim asks, if the Malachim were there, if the angels were present, why didn't Avraham Avinu see them? The answer is, is because Yitzchak was already on the Mizbeach. He was on the altar. He could do nothing at that point to prevent the Shechita from taking place. Since his Nisayun, his challenge was already complete, Hashem opened his eyes and he could see the Malochim surrounding him. Avram Avinu, however, was in the middle of the Nisayun. He was still in the middle of the challenge. The knife was still in his hands. Because of that, he did not get the revelation. Because at the time of a challenge, no one is Zocheb is privileged to see the Orel Yon, the highlight. Only after someone stands Bigvura, with great might and strength, is one able to be Menatseach, to be victorious over the Yetzahara. Then Hashem reveals to him how all of the Pamalya Shomayla, the heavenly court, look to us, to withstand the Nisayon, that we are a Nachas Ruach, a true joy and pride. To Hashem. A person should know that each of us has the power to be Miskaber, to stand to the challenge over the Yetzahara. Even though we cannot see that there are Malochim that surround us, those angels are there. They are rooting for us. They are telling us reach out, try for a higher calling, because you have the strength you have the innate ability to overcome all challenges and to be omed binisayon. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser bringing you morning chizik. Have a nice day. Jam in the AM on a Monday. Lori Palatnik is with us live via telephone. We've spoken to her before. She's founding director of Momentum, formerly, w, uh, formerly JWRP, and is a, a special mission uh, that left at the end of July uh, of 30 mothers of lone soldiers traveling to Israel with momentum, enabling the mothers to have emotional reunions with their sons and daughters and show their support for their service while better connecting with Israel. Lori Palatnik, welcome back to JM in the AM. Hi, it's good to be here. Is Thank the, you so much for having me on. Is the trip still going on? The trip is going on. I'm walking off a bus right now. We're at Ammunition Hill. Today's their last day. Momentum, or JWRP, was introduced to us as a way for um, a Jewish women, essentially, to connect to Israel. How did this concept of incorporating the lone soldier phenomenon into the program come about? Well, the pro- well Momentum was started... Um, again, for the Jewish Women's Renaissance Project, it was started not just to connect women to Israel, but also to connect them to their Jewish identities and to activate them in their communities. And when did the lone soldier concept get into the program of momentum? So a few years ago, our son Dev, he uh, 
he was in yeshiva here in Jerusalem, and he called up and said he was thinking about joining the IDF. And joining the IDF at the time we were living in the Washington, D.C. area meant he would be a lone soldier, Hayabodet. And he was going into, uh, into Nahal Haredi, who was part of Kshir, and it's the religious unit of the army. And he really, it was an incredible experience for him. And he really built him as a person, as a man, and it really, it, it connected us to, to, to the IDF. And we realized that what we went through as parents of lone soldiers, it's a heavy thing. Listen, you always worry about your kids and you always pray for your kids, but when your kids, you listen, I, I, it was pretty, uh, I wouldn't let my kid use a food processor, and they gave him a very big gun, okay? And <laughs> it was really, it, it's, it's very hard to understand and to, and, to, and to get through this, even though you know this is a good thing. So the idea was, you know, we're bringing mothers all the time, bringing mothers, we brought 18,000 mothers from 29 countries in, in partnership with the Ministry of Diaspora Affairs. So we do it in partnering with organizations around the world. We have over 200 partner organizations on the ground. They range from outreach call-outs to GCCs to federations to the the Jewish agency. And so we went to Nefesh Benefesh. I went to Nefesh Benefesh and I said, you know, we're bringing mothers from all over the world. What if we brought mothers of lone soldiers? And Nefesh Benefesh, they, uh, with the FIDF, they handled the lone soldier program. And they were, Rabbi Sass, a part of uh, Nefesh Benefesh, was so positive about it. We partnered up together, and he sent the word out to the lone soldiers. There's 6,000 lone soldiers in Israel right now serving the IDF. That means their families, do not, uh, well, two, for two-thirds of them, their families don't live in Israel. For one-third of them, they're sometimes estranged from their families, and so the state looks at them as lone soldiers, and they take care of them. So what we did was we, we put the word out, and we have right now our pilot trip of 29 Mothers of lone soldiers, they're, they're coming from Australia, South Africa, Canada, the United States, and Europe, and they're all English speakers. And it has been an incredible experience. One of the mothers told me, one of the greatest part of it was, well, first of all, the president of Israel had a reception at his home for the mothers. And then we surprised the mothers on Arab Shabbat on Friday. Uh, we had their soldiers, and we had to find them from all over the country and get all their commanders to sign off on it. And they came and they surprised their mothers, and they went onto the stage. We had the mothers on the stage, and they, the music came up, and they came down with flowers from, from both aisles. And, and it was, there was not a dry eye in the house. It was so special. <laughs> and one of the mothers told me that last mm. night, she said, she has two boys who are serving. And she said, after being on Momentum for a week and having her boys, spending Shabbat with her boys in Yerushalayim, she went to the Kotel with them on Moti Shabbat on Saturday night, and she said to them, now I understand why you're doing what you're doing, and I'm so proud of you. And she said, Hunter, and they cried, and it was really transformational. You know, it's funny. I was about to ask you that. I was about to ask you about the um, uh, about the realization, how different it is. We know, we know, when people think of Israel and think of the, uh, you know, from thousands of miles away, it's a much different experience than actually being there. And you and I have discussed this many times, and that's one of the reasons your organization works so well. Uh, but this whole thing of, you know, discovering what your own kid is doing, what your son or daughter is doing in Israel, and and how meaningful it is, it sounds so abstract from thousands of miles away, and then you go and see it. You see what they surround themselves with, how they spend their day, the danger that, God forbid, they might be in, etc. It's a big, eye-opening experience. 
But what was so profound, everything you're saying is true, but what was more profound is that because they had the, the mothers had the momentum experience where they really got in touch with their Jewish values and really fell in love with the country and connected our values with this country and what this country stands for, it, it made their service not just, wow, you're so brave fighting for the country, you're fighting for the Jewish people, and there's a reason to fight for the Jewish people because the Jewish people play a vital role in the world. No question about it. Um, so the uh, the the um, the soldiers, I assume, after Shabbat, they were back where they where they where the army says they belong, right? Yes, yes. The army's <laughs> like, okay, get back to work. <laughs> it was back to work, and it probably. But the mothers, I can tell you, the mothers said that their children, who did, most of them did not know each other because they're serving all over. The the children spent time together. The kids spent time together. These kids with guns spent time together, and they felt so connected to one another, not only because they're all little soldiers, but because their mothers were here on this program. And one of the mothers said to me, she said, she said, you know, I've been suffering for two years because my son is serving, and it's very hard for me. She says, but now, after this experience, if my younger son wants to serve, I'll let him. I'll, wow. I'll be proud of him. Uh, what happens when these women go back to their communities, Lori? Uh, explain the impact they have when they go back home. So when women sign up for Momentum, they sign up for a year program. The year program includes this highly subsidized eight-day transformational experience in Israel. But after the experience, you know, the last day of the trip is the first day of their journey. And there's follow-up that is done with our partnering organizations on the ground. This group of Mothers of Lone Soldiers, like the, the regular groups, are meeting at least once a month to continue their learning and, and continue their leadership building and continue their, their, their connections. So this group is going to be a little bit more uh, challenging in terms of the follow-up that happens afterwards. But because of technology and because of Zoom, and we were talking last night about we're going to work around all the uh, time zones, we're going to make sure they want to keep going and they want to be part of shaping it for the next trip, for the next group. If we can raise the funds, we want to bring even more Mothers of Lone Soldiers next year. Yeah, you can imagine the impact that will have. How, to get, how do people get information about Momentum? There are people listening right now, I bet, who either they themselves or they know people who would really benefit from a program like this, Lone Soldiers included or not. How do people get information about Momentum? So they go to MomentumUnlimited.org. MomentumUnlimited.org, and there's ways to find out more about Momentum Journeys, which are these trips. But we also have, like, video blogs and, and podcasts, and it's a real site for, for unlocking the power of Jewish mothers. We also have trips for men, because Momentum has the word men in it. So we have trips for the husbands of the women who have already come. And there's way, when you get onto the, uh, the site, you'll see, and you can navigate it and, uh, and be part of this incredible, incredible movement. And I assume there's information there about who's eligible, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, yes. And we're really, we're, we are targeting uh, women and men who are, who are not as connected uh, in their Jewish community and who are really not, uh, maybe have not benefited from a strong Jewish education um, and, uh, and, and uh, perhaps a lack of understanding of what Jewish identity and observance of being part of the Jewish people really means. And you have to have children at home under the age of 18. Uh, everybody out there, uh, listen to what Lori Palatnik's saying. It's an incredible program, this time around with the lone soldier phenomenon added, which is uh, an incredible bonus. Uh, go to MomentumUnlimited.org. MomentumUnlimited.org. <coughs> you could see how you 
or someone you know might be able to take advantage of one of these incredible journeys to Israel. MomentumUnlimited.org. Lori, enjoy the rest of the trip with the group. Send our regards to everybody and call out a vote for what you're doing. Well, too. Thank you so, so much. Lori Palatnik is the founding director of uh, Momentum. <coughs> Excuse me. That we know that we knew <coughs> for quite a while as JWRP. Monday morning broadcast, nine days format, JM and the AM with Rye Barrel Wine on the Haftora of Tishabov. The Haftora that uh, I'm going to deal with is the Haftora for Tishabov for the ninth day of all, the saddest day of the Jewish calendar. And the Haftora is. Uh, from the prophet Yirmiyahu. You know that there's a word in English that's called a, a Jeremiah. A Jeremiah is an elegy, a, a sad, doleful uh, type of prophecy. Well, uh, this is the chapter that I got the word from. This Haftorah is not only uh, sad, but the Navi. Uh, recites it in almost a ferocious tone. And that's why it's according to the custom of the Ashkenazim, it is the Haftorah for the morning of Tishabov. The uh, Svardim have a different Haftorah, uh, which is uh, in its way uh, more, uh, I don't know when to say cheerful, but it's less ferocious than this one. Hashem. I will utterly destroy them. That's the uh, usual uh, translation of the word Asofasifem. I shall utterly destroy them. To gather them, meaning like to gather them off the face of the earth. Uh, it can also mean that I will gather all of the fruit and all of the food and all of the defenses possible against the enemy, and the Jewish people will be left exposed and bare. We will see that uh, this Haftorah fits in very well in the description of all the times of terrible trouble of the Jewish people, and that the Novi may have had our, uh, our generation, the previous generation, in mind. There are no grapes on the vine. And there are no figs in the, on the fig tree. And the leaves have withered. And whatever I gave them as a gift, Yavrim has since passed away from them. There is nothing left for them. And the Forshim here say as follows. Grapes are the uh, most uh, important of all of the fruits in the world because from grapes you can make something. You can not only the grapes, you make wine, which is the has always been, at least in Jewish life, the most important of liquids. So grapes are representative. Sometimes you have people who are creative. It's not just the person himself. It's that this person can influence so many others. This person can benefit so many others. So they have been taken away. There are no more grapes on the vine. 
but at least you have people left, people in their own right, even if they're not necessarily effective with others, but they as a, as a person exist. That's te'enim ba'te'ino, the figs and the fig tree. You can't do much with figs except eat them. But the fig itself is a nourishing, sustaining food. There are no figs in the fig tree either. There are no people left. And not only that, there are people who themselves are shallow, who themselves are of little social value, who don't contribute that much to society. Uh, they're there for window dressing. They're there for show. They also are not here. The, with their representative of the leaf on the tree, which is there for protection and for show. It cannot be eaten, but it's part of the tree also. And the leaves have also withered. Every gift that I gave them, God says, Yavrum has been taken from them by the enemy. We have this concept many times in Tanakh, and the irony of life is that a person never knows who one really toils for. I, we don't know for whom the bell tolls. You really don't know whom you're saving your money for either. Because many times uh, it ends up in the hands of the government or the lawyers or all sorts of things that one never imagined. And it's taken. The Avrun, it's taken away. All the gifts that one had that could have been used for a positive and strong uh, action, all of that has been taken away. So the people who live in the scattered cities, in the defenseless towns, so they say, well, what are we doing here? What are we staying here exposed they're convinced that if they go to the main cities where the defensive walls have been constructed, that they will be saved. Let us come and gather and go to the fortified cities, to the cities that are well protected. So here again is the, not only the imagery of refugees on the run, uh, but the, the nature of people is to try and find some sort of refuge and improvement in their situation. So the people don't realize that it's a general calamity. They feel that they'll be safe somewhere else, which is what happened in the uh, Second World War in Eastern Europe, that no one imagined a general calamity. And they thought that if they went to Vilna, they'll be safe, or to Warsaw, they'll be safe without realizing that there was no longer any safe haven. Benidim Hashom. Benidim Hashom, we will be silent there. So silence here is uh, uh, an ironic word. They say we'll be silent, we won't be noticed. We'll be able to blend into the society and we'll be able to escape and be part of it. And the Lord says, Vinid Masham, there they will be struck dumb. They will be made silent. They'll be cut off. And the Novi continues, 
how futile that is. Ki Hashem Elokeinu Hadimonu. The Lord our God has silenced us. So the silence is that we cannot even pray to Him. The doors are closed. Ninalu The gates of prayer are closed. Nothing could move Him anymore. So there is a stage in human existence that is beyond our understanding where the gates of prayer are closed. We find that uh, in the personal life of Moshe, our teacher, who God told him it's in the parsha of Eschanon, so Moshe prayed unto God. He broke down the gates of prayer, and God told him, that's it, forget it. Stop it. And the Rebbe Shalom said, Rav, it's enough. I don't want to hear anything more. So there is a, uh, a gap between our understanding of the world and our understanding, so to speak, of the nature of the Creator and the reality of it. So the Lord has silenced us because even our traditional weapons of prayer do us no good anymore. He has given us to drink the waters, the poisonous waters. Rosh is a poison. It's polluted waters. Because our sins have overwhelmed us. We have sinned to God, and therefore this tragedy has occurred to us. Meirosh is a, an interesting uh, phenomenon because when the person, according to the Meforshim, when the person begins to drink the water, he doesn't realize that there's anything wrong with the water. It's not till the aftertaste sets in. It's a little like uh, Shoprite Cola. That the, it's only after the aftertaste sets in do you realize that it isn't so good. And then it's too late, right? And here it's poisonous, in fact. It's corrupted. It's, uh, it cannot be, uh, cannot be consumed. So this also is an imagery of how the Jewish people were. They drank strange waters. They served strange gods. So while they were drinking it, they thought everything was fine. Now the aftertaste has caught up to them. Now they realize that they have poisoned their system and that God will not overlook it. We hoped for peace, but there's nothing good that happened. No good came upon us. We hoped for a time of healing. Marpe is like with an olive. This is spelled with a hay, but it's the same word. Marpe, we hoped for a time of refua. Time of healing, and instead of that, there's terror. Also, is terror. The terror, the panic. That is that that is the uh, the psychological fright that we know is many times as bad, if not as worse, than the actual physical danger. And so in Israel, never the people died of a heart attack. One of my uh, Talmudim, five of my Talmudim were in Eretz Yisrael for, for these two weeks, and they came back. And one of them told me that, uh, that uh, Friday there was a uh, thunderstorm in Tel Aviv. 
And the peal of the thunder, people ran into the shelter because of the fact that they thought the Patriot missiles were going. That's the terror. That's the fright. He said other Jews stood on the street and recited the bracha out loud. There's a bracha that you make on thunder. Which is, again, the same, the reaction to it. I have, uh, you know, Saddam Hussein deserves some credit. I have uh, someone in Israel that I, uh, I've dealt with for many, many years regarding uh, certain uh, foundations that uh, the yeshiva has been able to, uh, to get some money from, and we've been able to place people. And, uh, interesting. So the person is uh, an agnostic, if not an atheist. Comes when they come to the yeshiva to visit the yeshiva, they like they don't know how to put on a yarmulke. It's uh, it's against their conscience, their inner conscience. But uh, you know, Rabbi Wine's a nice guy. I always treat him nicely, and I write to him. So I wrote to him uh, two days ago. I faxed him something. Then the fact that I hope in Mir Hashem to be in Israel in the next. Uh, few days, relatively speaking, and that I have to meet with him, and I want to know if the meeting is on, etc., and if he could, uh... so I got the facts back this morning, and he writes in the facts, he wrote it out with his own hand, not with a typewriter, he wrote it out with his own hand, and he says, when you come, God willing, to Jerusalem, you know, we'll talk about these and these matters, right? the guy writes in Mirza yeah, so you cannot say that he doesn't have some effect, our friend Saddam. But it's a frightening thing. That's the terror. Behold, we thought that there would be a time of healing, and instead it's a time of terror. This is the description of the enemy. From dawn in the north, we hear the neighing of his horses. We hear the noise of his horses, of the, uh, of the uh, cavalry charging. So when the horse charges, he breathes heavily through his nostrils, so you hear that sound. So to us, uh, where we're no longer in, in horse and uh, cavalry warfare, so we would say you hear the sonic boom of the jets, you hear the explosions. You hear the sounds of war. They say that one of the uh, most frightening things in the modern battlefield is simply the noise. The noise is of a nature that it paralyzes people. So that's, we hear it coming from the north, Midon. We hear the voices, the shouts of their heroes, of their strong men. In the ancient world, even as late as the American Civil War, the rebel yell. The South, uh, when the soldiers charged, so they had a special yell. And in all of the uh, records of the Civil War, anyone who heard the rebel yell remembered it for the rest of their lives, both friend and foe. So that's the Mitzhalo Sabiro, the shouts of its heroes, the yell. All the earth trembles. It trembles because of the great mass of humanity that is moving. Jam in the AM on a Monday, Rabbi Burl, Rabbi Burl Wine on the Haftorah of Tishabov.
And we will continue with this lecture a little later on in the 8 o'clock hour. This is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program, heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world on the web and com on the Siegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. And we will get to some of the community calendar items, etc., coming up here at JMN. Uh, we designated today, usually on the 3rd of Av, but today the 4th of Av, because yesterday was a Sunday, we designated today to play my father's eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. This was delivered 25 years ago yesterday. 25 years ago yesterday in the Shloshim observance of the passing of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Rabbi Zev Siegel on the life of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, a eulogy he delivered 25 years ago here at JM in the AM. This coming uh, Shabbos, we shall read in the Torah the summation of Moshe Rabbeinu. And among the things that Moshe Rabbeinu says is Echo Eso Levadi Tochachem Masachem Berifchem. Moshe Rabbeinu confesses that he doesn't know how he is able to carry the burden of leadership all by himself. And then he continues, so he decided there should be a leadership assisting him. And he says, the qualifications of leadership should be the following, and this is what the Torah tells us. Get yourselves men, chachomim, wise men, unevonim, understanding men, now you can't help but associate this statement of Moshe Rabbeinu where he designates the qualifications that there is a very strong relationship to Chabad. He says, Chachomim. Chachma, Nevonim, Bino, Veyiduim, Das, and this is Chabad. The leadership of Klal Yisroel was given to the Rebbe. And he fulfilled that mission to the maximum that can be fulfilled. He had Klal Yisrael, the entire people of Israel, was his concern. And a deep concern. Every corner in the world 
no matter how forsaken it was, and no matter how few Jews were there, he had them on his mind, in his heart and his soul. If there was a man qualified to reconstruct Jewish life after the great Hurdle, after the tragic Holocaust that befell our people, he was one man who did it. He reconstructed Jewish life in a very commendable way and at the same time he made Jews feel without any exception whoever they may have been that they are a part of this reconstruction He worried about every Jew wherever he was. And he had a certain devotion and dedication to Claudius Royal. I used to sit and I had the great privilege, and I don't pretend that I understood the rabbi. I don't pretend that I can evaluate his scholarship or his spiritual greatness but at the same time in my own way I was privileged to spend a great deal of time it is no secret many of you know it I used to come in 12 o'clock midnight and walk out not earlier than 3.30 in the morning, and sometimes even later. And after a while when we were sitting, the bell used to ring. And I tried to get up, because I knew there were people waiting there, people who were older than me. And as I was trying to get up, the Rebbe said in a tone almost of chastising me, he says, what are you, we are talking about the Klal. Wir reden wegen Klalsachen. And there was no disturbance when he was engaged in worrying about Claudius Royal. And I can go on and on about his great concerns. Nothing else to point out except the Jewish community in the former Soviet Union. Well, three generations of Jews were alienated from everything that had to do with Judaism. And the only underground movement that succeeded 
in existence during the Bolshevik regime was the Lubavitch movement. And I know for a fact, I can stand here for hours and testify how this underground movement functioned with real devotion and dedication to everything that had to do with Jews and Judaism. And the Rebbe was the leader. No matter how many thousands of miles he was away, they were waiting with a great deal of thirst to hear something from 770. I was in Riga and Professor Branover was there. And you probably heard of Professor Branover. Besides being a devoted Hasid, a great scientist, universally recognized, a real Jewish leader, respect from all walks of life in the state of Israel, under every government, and Professor Branover told us the following. When Gorbachev came to power, the Reb, so people were very scared at the time. And the Rebbe sent a message to the Jewish community in Russia, and he told them, don't worry, things will get better. And actually, they accepted the Rebbe's word. And it calmed them down a little bit. But then Branover says when Gorbachev was in Israel recently, and he spent quite some time with him, so he asked Gorbachev, did you really, when you came to power, did you really think that you are going to change from your predecessors? And Gorbachev said, no, not at all. In fact, my idea was to tighten a little stronger than my predecessors. Gorbachev didn't know where he's heading to. But the Rebbe had enough insight to predict that things will improve. And I can testify it from another angle. You remember when the El Al plane was hijacked to Algiers? And the rumor was that Ariel Sharon was to be on this plane and he was told by the Rebbe that he should not travel with that plane. That was the rumor. When I met next with the Rebbe, so a little time passed, and I was curious, 
And I said to him, I hear rumors that you stopped Sharon from traveling down that El Al plane that was hijacked to Algeria. And the rabbi says the following. He made sure that he did not accept when I said he stopped the plane. And he said, you know, Sharon came to say goodbye to me before he went to Israel. And I said to him, don't go. And Sharon didn't go. He says, it's true. So naturally, obviously, I ask the next question. If you knew that the plane will be hijacked, why only save Sharon? You could have saved everyone else on that plane. And the rabbi gave me a look like I interpreted that it was not the wisest question that I have asked him. He says to me the following, he, says, he said it in Yiddish, do you think that I saw a plane being hijacked? He came to say goodbye, and all I did was say, don't go. For me, this was testimony of a certain insight. that very rare human beings possess that insight. And this is what Braunover meant. And this insight was used to reconstruct Jewish life in the world again. A great deal was said about the Rebbe's Involvement in Eretz Israel. I knew many, many leaders in Jewish life, Zionists and non-Zionists. I had the privilege to be the youngest delegate, believe it or not, I was young once the youngest delegate to the last Zionist Congress before the establishment of the Jewish state in Basel. And I sat on very important committees. And I saw leaders as well in the Torah world as well. But every one of them had a certain area of knowledge and insight one may have been politically, diplomatically well-versed. Or one may have been involved in the economics. Or one may have been involved in science. Or in military affairs. But the rabbi had them all. And I can again say it from personal experience. The hours that I listened and discussed of every conceivable phase 
in the life of Eretz Yisrael. Not only education, not only the practice of Torah, but every conceivable phase of life in Eretz Yisrael. And I don't have to tell you his concern about the Shlemus of Eretz Yisrael. That was on his agenda. And in the last few years, he had something to worry about, as we see it now. He talked about outreach a great deal. There are many, many who are occupied with outreach, and God forbid for me to minimize it. I know what it is. I was a little involved with it. But the outreach of Lubavitch is second to none. The devotion and dedication and the Mesilas Nefesh of the Shlichim in all parts of the world. I was sitting a short three weeks ago, a Friday night, who is now acting as the chief rabbi of Latvia. And you know the days are very long now in that part of the world. And I heard the Friday night the devotion, the discipline. Nothing was difficult. And if there is Jewish life today in Riga, it is this chief rabbi who could have stayed in Far Chabad with his family. Instead, he is suffering in Riga or a young man, many of you may know Glossman, a wife, a young wife with three infants, doing youth work in every possible way. He's running now a summer camp. And I don't have to tell you, I, I had occasion to, a couple of years ago when I spoke for a group who was involved with Lubavitch, to tell you about someone who was very, very active here, Rebley Braskin, who is in Casablanca for many, many years. And I saw him there in 68, also with infants. And when I went down from his apartment about one o'clock at night on a Friday night, and I say to him, excuse me for keeping you so late. So he says, what do you mean, excuse me? 
First of all, you are the first one who is here, who was there. There in Morocco in those days, there meant Israel. That's number one. So we heard what's doing. And secondly, he says, let my children know that there is, there is a Jew in the world who speaks Yiddish too. I can tell you many stories, but my time is limited. I can tell you what the Rebbe did in South Africa when I was there in the 70s, when the Jewish community was in a turmoil, and the Rebbe calmed them down, and the Shlichim there did their job. If there is a Seder in Himalaya, who does it? If a shochet was needed in Romania, who supplied it? If a mohel was needed in any part of the world, they were there, and they are still there. Yes, indeed, outreach to its maximum all part of a reconstruction of Jewish life. Tremendous amount of creativity. You remember when the rabbi started with the Mifzat feeling in the Six-Day War? And feeling was not the most popular thing on the American scene. It was popular maybe on the day of Bar Mitzvah or a month before the Bar Mitzvah. But I have noticed what film did. When you come to the Kotel, to the Western Wall, a religious Jew has no problem. Either he dams Minche or Mayriv or Shachris, and if he comes in another part of the day, he says, stealing, he reads the Psalms. But what does a non-religious Jew do at the Kotel? What does he do? Another piece of paper on the wall. But feeling became synonymous with the Kotel of the non-committed Jew. He comes to the Kotel, he knows that this is the time to put on film and say Shema Yisrael. Or all the other projects, the lighting of candles, another creativity. The Rebbe was the first one on the American Jewish scene who did not permit Jews to run away from Jewish neighborhoods. But as it was said at the same time, the Rebbe never forgot the individual. And I want to share with you 
One of the experiences I had, which I must confess to you marked the rest of my life, particularly in the last few years, it was a great help to me. On one of my travels, and until this day I don't know how the rabbit discovered that I'm going somewhere, I was called and the rabbi asked me to do something in that particular country. I came back, so I gave him a report, and again with lack of wisdom, I say to him, I conversed in Yiddish, I said the rabbis of Wissen as is nicht gewenk in geringe Sach. I said the rabbi should know that this was not easy, an easy task for me. It was very difficult. And again the rabbi looks at me and makes me aware how uh, unwise I am, to put it mildly. And he says to me, Alaf Segal, Zint Ven, Otir gemacht a contract mit Nuribene Shalaylom, Faragringen Led. The rabbi says to me, Since when did you make a contract with the Almighty for an easy life? And as I said, among many, many things, this has become a guide in my own life. Yes, indeed, my friends, there is a great deal to be said, and a great deal will be said. Because in all this, there is immortality. The Rebbe was not only the Manig Hador, he will be the Manig Hadoros. Many, many generations will benefit from what the Rebbe was for the people of Israel. And I know I'm as sure as I can be that right now as he stands before the Kisei HaKovot he is doing everything he possibly can bring about our Geulah Shleim of J.M. and the A.M., there it is, is right. That is the uh, eulogy that my father delivered uh, on the 3rd of uh, Av back in uh, 1994, 25 years ago yesterday during the Shloshim observance uh, for the Lubavitcher Rebbe after the Rebbe's passing.
long regarded as one of the best 25-minute reviews, biography, sketches uh, of the Rebbe that you'll ever hear. Uh, he was invited by that at that time by Rabbi Moshe Herson, who of course leads Chabad in New Jersey and is a dear friend of our family until this day. And although we would do it anyway, um, we are encouraged every year by Rabbi Herson to remember to air uh, my father's uh, eulogy, Lubavitcher Rebbe. It's a great way to keep the incredible life of the Rebbe in focus for so many, including many who at this point never knew him. Monday morning broadcast, JM in the AM. More coming up. We've got uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine speaking on the topic of the Haftorah of Tishabav. We will uh, continue with um, part one of this lecture series, the Haftorah of Tishabav, part one. Uh, we will break about 20 some minutes from now and go through the. Uh, schedule of events for this week, a lot of things going on, and of course for Tisha B'Av itself. Uh, I remind you that in terms of our NSN schedule, Mayor Weingarten has the day off uh, from the Israel show at 10 o'clock. Uh, Yoni Pollock will be live with After Further Review, and at 11 o'clock, Jake Novak on Novak Now will be speaking about the El Paso and Dayton shootings um, and uh, the true causes for the spike in mass shootings. He will explore what's troubling America's young adults and discuss it in the context of these horrific episodes that occurred this weekend here in the United States. That's happening on Novak now at 11 o'clock Eastern time here on the Nahum Siegel Network. Rabbi Beryl Wines lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or on the web, rabbiwine.com, rabbiwein.com. Speaking about the Haftorah of Tishabov and recited the bracha out loud. There's a bracha that you make on thunder. Which is, again, the same, the reaction to it. I have, uh, you know, Saddam Hussein deserves some credit. I have uh, someone in Israel that I, uh, I've dealt with for many, many years regarding uh, certain uh, foundations that uh, the yeshiva has been able to uh, to get some money from and we've been able to place people and uh, interesting so the person is a, an agnostic if not an atheist and comes when they come to the yeshiva to visit the yeshiva they like they don't know how to put on a yarmulke it's uh, it's against their conscience their inner conscience but, uh, you know, Rabbi Wine's a nice guy. I always treat him nicely, and I write to him. So I wrote to him uh, two days ago. I faxed him something. And the fact that I hope in Mirza Shem to be in Israel in the next uh, few days, relatively speaking, and that I have to meet with him, and I want to know if the meeting is on, etc. and if he could... Uh... So I got the fax back this morning. And he writes in the fax. He wrote it out with his own hand, not with a typewriter. He wrote it out with his own hand. And he says, When you come, God willing, to Jerusalem, you know, we'll talk about these and these matters. Right? The guy writes in Yerzah Hashem. Yeah, so you cannot say that he doesn't have some effect, our friend Saddam. But it's a frightening thing. That's the terror. Behold, we thought that there would be a time of healing, and instead it's a time of terror. 
Midon Nishma Nachara Susov. This is the description of the enemy. From Don in the north, we hear the neighing of his horses. We hear the noise of his horses, of the, uh, of the uh, cavalry charging. So when the horse charges, he breathes heavily through his nostrils, so you hear that sound. So to us, uh, where we're no longer in, in horse and uh, cavalry warfare, so we would say you hear the sonic boom of the jets, you hear the explosions, you hear the sounds of war. They say that one of the uh, most frightening things in the modern battlefield is simply the noise. The noise is of a nature that it paralyzes people. So that's, we hear it coming from the north, Midon. We hear the voices, the shouts of their heroes, of their strong men. In the ancient world, even as late as the American Civil War, the rebel yell. The south, uh, when the soldiers charged, so they had a special yell. And in all of the uh, records of the Civil War, Anyone who heard the rebel yell remembered it for the rest of their lives, both friend and foe. So that's the Mitzhalo Sabiro, the shouts of its heroes, the yell. All the earth trembles. It trembles because of the great mass of humanity that is moving. And they have come to consume the entire country, the land and everything that is in it, the city and all those who dwell within it. So the city refers to all the cities of Israel, but it refers always most specifically to the city of Yerushalayim, which is the city in the world. Now, because God says, Ki hineni meshaleach bochem nechoshim tzifonim. I am sending amongst you snakes that are vipers. That's the description of the enemy. Tzifoni is a viper. That's the most poisonous of snakes. It's a snake that even that if it touches you, it destroys you. There are snakes that, uh, nobody likes snakes particularly, but there are snakes uh, like the garden snake or the garter snake that uh, is not necessarily dangerous at all. It may even be beneficial. Keeps, uh, keeps other uh, rodents and insects out of your tomato patch. But then there are poisonous snakes, but there are poisonous snakes that a person can recover from the bite. They are not very poisonous. It's not fun, but there are poisonous. Right? And then there are snakes that are like vipers where the bite is lethal, where the venom is such that it paralyzes the human nervous system in an instant. And the person can't breathe. He cannot come to himself. So that's God says on the snakes, the enemies that I am sending you, not nice enemies. You know, America in the middle of bombing Iraq, he says today, you know, that we're going to need $20 billion to rebuild it. Right? So, you know, that's America. Now, therefore, they already got in the budget, they're going to rebuild it. 
But the most, uh, our enemies are nechoshim tzifonim, they are vipers. Asher ein lohem lochash. So ein lohem lochash has a double meaning. One meaning is that they have no venom. They have no venom, meaning uh, that they're so poisonous that you don't need any venom, right? They're just the teeth, the fangs alone kill. They don't have to inject you with a tremendous amount of venom. They are so lethal. Others learn, they make no noise. They are so stealthily careful to surprise you that they make no noise. You don't even realize that the snake is upon you. Others say, there is no antidote to their bite. Because uh, many snake bites have an antidote. And if a person injects himself with the antidote, so he's able to survive. This is one that has no antidote. It has, there's no way to get rid of this bite. So all three pshoti mean the same, that you're talking here about a snake for which there is no defense. And they shall certainly bite you. Don't think that you will escape. So we have here, uh, as I mentioned, you know, a ferocity of vision. And you'll see that the Novi doesn't even ask the Jewish people to do tshuva. He doesn't say pray to God because he says it's useless. You know, you just, you got to take it. There's nothing there. It's irreversible. It's of no use. Mavligisi ale yogon. I strengthen myself. Mavligisi means I strengthen myself in my grief, in my sorrow, the Novi says. Olai libi davoi. Inside me, my heart is sad and broken. Why? Because the Novi's been saying this for 30 years. He said, this is what's going to happen. Now he sees that everything he said comes true. So there are people in the world, Nevach, that like to say, I told you so, who have a perverse pleasure over the fact that they are right. I see they always write for the Wall Street Journal. I, I told you so. Nobody likes to hear, I told you so. Not in a family, not in a school, not in the community, not in the world. It doesn't accomplish anything. But here the Novi is genuinely heartbroken that his words have come true. Don't forget the Novi was put in jail for saying these things. He was in the dungeon. He was arrested a number of times. He was held up to ridicule. The kings of Judah said that he's a troublemaker. He's not telling the truth. The truth is that nothing's going to happen. And now he is vindicated beyond any imagination. So the Novi uh, humanly uh, would be allowed a moment, a glimpse of uh, self-satisfaction. I told you so. You didn't listen to me? Look what happened. But that's not the Novi Yermio. The Novi is heartbroken. Hine kol shavas basami. I hear the voice, the shouts of the daughter of my people, meaning of my people, my daughter. Me'eretz marchakim. She shouts from a far land. He sees them in the exile already. 
Jews scattered all over the world, far from their homes. Hashem ain b'tzion. Is God no longer in Zion? There are no Jews there. The temple is destroyed. There's no Jewish settlement. We, uh, who in our time uh, have never had to imagine, I always feel that when I speak in the yeshiva to the boys, so in the yeshiva there is nobody there almost that... Uh, uh, the, that remembers any time when the Jewish people didn't own Jerusalem and didn't have the Western Wall, and uh, you know, to them, it's uh, you know, that's the way it's supposed to be. And there's no amongst us. There was always the, in our lifetime a great Jewish settlement in the land of Israel, but it was not always like that. In fact, for most of the time, it was not like that at all. We take it for granted take the state of Israel for granted. We take everything for granted. It's supposed to be that way. And we even have complaints that it's not the way we like it. I remember when I was a uh, child growing up in my parents' home in Chicago, so uh, we used to get letters from Palestine, from my father's relatives, from my relatives. So the, the British, who always were very even-handed in, in these matters, so the stamp of Palestine had the Mosque of Omar on it. That was the stamp of Palestine. And uh, I remember my father used to peel off the stamp. He used to keep the stamps. So I once asked him, what do we need the stamps for? You know, the stamp, you can't use them here. <clears throat> so he said the stamp is printed in Hebrew. It's a Hebrew stamp. It says on it, it said Palestine in Hebrew. It said in Arabic and in English and in Hebrew. So the Eastern European Jews, if you saw a postage stamp printed in Hebrew, so that was, you know, that meant something. Different world, different understanding. So the, the God is not in Zion, right? The Jewish people are not there. Just as an aside, Israel has probably the most beautiful postage stamps in the world. They put out such a beauty. It was the 900th your side of Rashi. So they put out a stamp for Rashi and Rashi letters. It was just just beautiful, that stamp I have. Just beautiful. I mean, like, the right thing. Right thing to do. I commented on the yeshiva in that, too, that Greece never put out a stamp of Alexander the Great yet. Italy didn't put out a stamp of Julius Caesar. Right? They're all gone, right? He put out a stamp in Rashi Ksav, everybody caught it, you know? Everybody got, understood immediately the stamp. They didn't use the regular Hebrew, they used the Rashi Hebrew to put it out. So that's, uh, you know, that's the Jewish people. Imauka Ingba, the king is not there, the, the royal palace is not inhabited. Where is God? How could such a thing happen? So God answers, How about them? Why did they anger me for so many centuries with their idols? With the vanities of the strangers. How did, why did they do that? Right? Now they ask, what happened to God? God asks, what happened to you? Now, this is the ongoing conversation, which is the story of the exile of the Jewish people. We and God never seem to get the story straight. 
How did it happen? Of our kotsir kolokoyets, the harvest season has passed. Kayets, the summer is gone. People thought that somehow we would be saved in the passage of time. Some miracle would come and stop the Babylonian army. A miracle would occur. It's interesting how all the contests remain the contests of the Bible, right? Babylonia, right? So we think Babylonia, Babylonia. Here it is, Babylonia. The old contests are all here. You know, Saddam Hussein uh, uh, named his nuclear reactor Tammuz 17 after the 17th day of Tammuz when the Babylonians cracked the walls of Jerusalem. He knows what he wants to do. He's not without... Uh, the only thing is he doesn't know that the Babylonians were on the 10th day of Thomas and the 17th day of Thomas were the Romans. <laughs> he doesn't know the Rashi, right? That he didn't figure out. But, but his message is clear, right? So the Babylonians are back. We thought we would be saved. We have not been saved. We have not been saved. This is a reference, a veiled reference to the fact that the Jews counted on the Egyptians to come to their aid. The Jews had an alliance with Egypt, and that was what they relied upon. The Novi said, rely upon God, and they relied upon the Egyptians, and the Egyptians never came. Al-Shever Basami Hoshborti. Hoshborti means, I am broken over the fact that my people have been broken. The disaster of my people is my disaster. The Novi takes it personally. Again, that's uh, a trait of identity with the Jewish people, to be able to identify with the Jewish people. I always remember that as a little boy, my Zayda never allowed the house to be painted my, my, my aunt had arranged that the house should be painted for Pesach. It was 1943. And the Jew came to paint the house for Pesach, a paint now. And she evidently had done it without my grandfather's permission. And when in, she, uh, my grandfather lived with them after my grandmother died, she lived with my aunt and uncle. So when he came home, uh, from shul, I happened to be there with my mother. So the painter came in and started setting everything up. And he looked around, and he sees the painter is there. So he asked him, what's he doing there? So he said, my aunt, uh, you know, my aunt had ordered it. So he said, well, there must be a mistake. And he went in the kitchen. He told my aunt, he said, Jews are burning in the ovens. We're not going to paint the house for Pesach. Then he went and he paid the painter the whole amount of money because he knew the Jew needed the money for Pesach. So he took care of both things. I remember that like today. He gave him the money, and they didn't paint the house. He's not going to paint the house. Jewish people are in trouble. He's not going to paint the house. But that's an, you know, a, a feeling of identity. I don't, you know, you can't criticize Jews, but it's, you know, sometimes things are hard to look at. It's hard to see, you know. What I mean? How people don't feel. People don't are not sensitive to what's happening. They're only they're worried about the, their petty things. The Novi says, "I am broken by 
the disaster of my people. Kordarti, I have become blackened. My face is black. Shama hechizikosni, desolation holds me in its grasp. I am desolate. I have nowhere to go in the world. Famous Pasuk here, Chav Beis, Hatsori ein begilad, is there no baum in gilad? Is there no medicine to be found? Imrofe ein shom, is there no doctor for us? Is there no healer that can help us? Madualo also aruchas basami, why do my people find no solace? Why do they have no healing? Why is my blow such a blow that it cannot be healed? Now this is the in the King James Version and the translation of the Bible. Now this is the famous uh, phrase, uh, Baum in Gilead. There are no Baum in Gilead. Which in the modern English they already translate, you know, there are no Tylenol in the medicine chest. And the modern one is Azeon Tam, right? It's Mamish without any sense. The, the King James Version is majesty. But, uh, you know, nobody likes 16th century English today. The, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? So the new one says, the Lord tends my sheep, I lack nothing. But the only thing you lack is sensitivity. So this is the famous phrase, Baum from Gilead. Would that my head would be a source of water that I could always weep. There are so many tears to be shed and I don't have any more tears than Ovi says. I'm exhausted of tears. My eye to be the source of tears. If that would be Voevke Yomam Valailo, I would weep day and night. I would weep without interruption as Chalale Basami. JM in the AM with Rabbi Barrel Wine, the Haftorah of Tishabov is the topic. Information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1 800 499 WEIN, 1 800 499 WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. I want to remind everybody that Mayor Weingarten has the day off. Uh, Israel show will return next week. Uh, Yoni Pollock live with after further review at 10 a.m. Jake Novak live at 11 a.m. with Novak now. He'll speak about the El Paso and Dayton shootings and look at the true causes for the spike in mass shootings. Jake Novak will explore what's really troubling America's young adults between 11 a.m. or I should say starting at 11 a.m. this morning right here, 11 a.m. Eastern time on the Nahum Siegel Network. I want to thank those who commented on the app regarding my father's eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. One listener said, wow, thank you for that message from your father. One said, wow, what a beautiful eulogy from your father. And the other one said, my eight-year-old won't get dressed. He's listening to your father's speech, (laughs) which I, as my father's son, (laughs) appreciate on many different levels. So thank you very much for that. I'm glad we're able to continue the annual tradition 25 years later after my father was invited by Herson to deliver the eulogy, uh, one of the eulogies, at the Shloshim Observance for the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Um, nine days here at JM in the AM. 
We'll continue, obviously, uh, tomorrow morning with our spoken word format. There are events going on this week. First of all, I, I want to remind everybody, with all the discussion about the nine days, rightfully so, uh, don't forget next week is a very, very exciting week for us here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Uh, we are here Monday morning, the morning after the observance of Tisha B'Av. And then on Tuesday, we fly with Nefesh Benefesh to Israel. That's a show that you will hear on Wednesday of next week between 6 and 9 a.m. It is always one of the most inspiring things we do. We speak with Olim as they are moving to Israel on the plane with Nefesh Benefesh. So I'll have that for you a week from this Wednesday, and then we'll get back and uh, really step up our our programming as we always do uh, once the three weeks have concluded. Um, today, the Young Israel of Fort Lee holds its popular monthly Lunch and Learn at noon with prominent author and lecturer of Ayakov Horowitz. Uh, he will discuss um, one-on-one on child safety, addiction, abuse, and LGBTQ in the Orthodox community. Uh, there'll be questions and answers as well. It's all happening today at the um, at the Youngersville Fort Lee Lunch and Learn. Tomorrow, the uh, annual Catskills Nine Days Conference takes place. That's courtesy of the United Task Force. When did honor thy children become one of the Ten Commandments? How to instill gratitude and respect in our kids. Dr. David Palkovitz, Hindi Klein, Dr. Faye Zakheim, Dr. Shoshana Friedman. They'll all be addressing this topic. And that's going to happen uh, today, excuse me, tomorrow, starting at 1.30 p.m. at the Falls View Estate Shul in Fallsburg, New York. All right, so keep that in mind for... Uh, Tomorrow, up in the Catskills. Uh, What else do we have for you? AFSI reminds everybody that the annual memorial and tribute to Zev Jabotinsky happens tomorrow night at 7 p.m. at Parkey Synagogue, 164 East 68th Street in New York. Uh, Aryeh King... And Amotz Eyal will both be speaking tomorrow night. Information 212-828-2424 for information. Tomorrow night is um, is National Night Out. The Teaneck Police have their National Night Out of OT Park starting at 5 p.m. Um... Information, contact the Teaneck Police Department. Amit Yomi Yun, this uh, Wednesday, for women by women, starts at 9.30 in the morning at the Sephardic Temple on Branch Boulevard in Cedarhurst. Keynote speaker is Razi Chechik, head of school at Manhattan Day School. The topic is Letters Floating in the Air, the story of the woman who printed the Vilna Talmud. Lunch will follow. For in, uh, for information, it's amitchildren.org slash yomiyun, amitchildren.org slash yomiyun. Just One Life has the uh, program at the Mandel Family, the Westminster Avenue home of the Mandel family, family in Bergenfield. This happens uh, Wednesday night at 8 p.m. with everybody, Y.Y. Jacobson. 
Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson will preside. The live Tisha B'Av program that we are going to be presenting. Again, the live Tisha B'Av program. Um, at the New Springville Jewish Center this coming Sunday on the observance day of Tisha B'Av. Uh, we're going to have it for you live at NahumSiegel.com and on the app, on the NSN app. Shlomo Y. Siegel, Shlomo Schwartz, Rabbi Yehuda Kovacs, Rabbi Eliyahu Sonnenschein, Rabbi Yosef Siegel will all be explaining Kinnis beginning at 9.15. At 12.15, thoughts about Tisha B'Av with Mayor Simcha Siegel and Rabbi Yaakov Lairfield. Mincha will be at 2 o'clock. Watch the entire thing live at NahumSiegel.com. If you want to dive in Shachris at the New Springville Jewish Center on Sunday, it's at 8.25. And again, Mincha at 2 p.m. Mincha at the Isaiah Wall is going to be at 2 o'clock. Opposite the United Nations at 1st Avenue and 43rd Street in New York. It's a full Mincha with Torah reading and more. Information 212-663-5784. And as we said, we're getting set for the big day next week when we uh, travel with Nefesh Benefesh and literally speak with Olim, those moving to Israel, while they're on the plane, which is pretty amazing. We'll be doing that next week. You will hear that show Wednesday morning between 6 and 9 a.m. Our brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard a listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSegal.com, on the NachumSegal Network, and, of course, in the beloved NSN app. And that wraps up a Monday morning JM in the AM nine days format. Plenty more is tomorrow starting at 6 a.m. Make sure to join us. Mayor Weingarten is off. No Israel show coming up, but at 10 o'clock, live sports discussion with Yoni Pollock on After Further Review. And at 11 a.m., Jake Novak with Novak Now. Uh, a reaction to El Paso and Dayton, 11 a.m. Eastern time right here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Have a fabulous Monday. Till tomorrow, Nahum Siegel reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.